0: So welcome, my name is Ellen Flaherty, Um, and just to give you a little background, um, I am one of the nurse practitioners on the geriatric team, uh, known as the blue team, over in internal medicine. Um, I have been a geriatric nurse practitioner for over 30 years, um, and my practice has focused a lot on uh, pain, managing pain and uh, interdisciplinary teams, so trying to get teams to work better together in both long-term care and in the hospital. Um, I uh, Right now, my clinical practice is across the street on the team, and I also coordinate the community home care practice uh, right now with Dr. Stadler. So we see patients at home, and we see patients in assisted living facilities and some of the local nursing homes as well. Um, and I also wear a hat over here. Uh, we have a geriatric education center uh, that focuses on. It's a grant that's funded by the government that's focused on educating um, healthcare providers who are kind of at the grassroots. So, so providers of all different disciplines who are actually in in the field, touching patients, um, and then also help out with the aging resource center, which is this program is sponsored through the. The Aging Resource Center. Um, So while I have some slides and I gave you some handouts, I'd really like to try to have this be as informal as we possibly can to really get to see what your needs are, um, why you're here today, and to have a dialogue about um, different types of pain that people have, And um, to see, um, to talk a lot about some of the management plans and some of the solutions that we have. Um, So to start out, I just wanted to kind of frame the issue. Um, Pain is a very common problem in older adults. Um, And so we see um, 20 to 50% of what we say community residing older adults. So that's folks that are not in nursing homes, um, and in nursing homes it is much higher, uh, and the reason for that is mostly that people in nursing homes have more problems or are there because of you know hip fractures or other types of issues that brought them to the nursing home, and a lot of those issues really focus on mobility, um, so that's why we see a lot, a lot more nursing home residents with with persistent pain. So I'm just going to stop there and we're going to go around and I'd like you to introduce yourselves and just tell me um, what attracted you to come here um, to this program today.
1: Uh, My name is Joan Kremlisk and I spend two days a week with my mother. Um, My mother's um, 88 and she's um, in her own home and um, we've been, uh, me and my siblings, I have three other siblings, have been um, caring for her. for it. Anyway, we we didn't know. Anyway, it's been going on for years now. I mean, she she gets better at one thing, and then she has something else. So, um, but anyway, so I have been um, anyway caring for her uh, with the days that I'm with her, and um, so let's see. So anyway, I happened to be here for I came for the flu shot, and so uh, she has she has certain. uh, let's see, uh, I, uh, pain or just difficulties, I guess, in various things, and so how to best handle um, or make her more comfortable, uh, mm-hmm. so,
2: anyway, that's <laughs> Terrific. <laughs> uh, well, welcome. Thank you. My name is Nancy Jerome. Uh, I have various types of pain. The chronic ones are osteoarthritis uh, and peripheral artery disease. Uh, which affects walking and I have a back upper back spasm that nobody can figure out why uh, that I've now had for about six years. Mm -hmm. Um, The spasms and the PAD interfere with all kinds of things that I want to do. I've tried all kinds of uh, solutions but uh, I've been to another pain workshop which was not suited to my Type of discipline and, and exercising and so on. I do a great deal of exercise and um, I just thought I might pick up something new that I hadn't thought about by coming here.
0: Sure, sure. So welcome. We're just going around and folks are introducing themselves and just saying for a few, a few words about what attracted them to come here to this program. So if you'd like to continue.
3: Oh, sure. My name is Stuart Smith and uh, I'm interested in uh, addressing my hands, which are, I can't tell if it's uh, arthritis or uh, the tendons. Mm -hmm. And just, I wonder what I can do about it. I'm a musician and it gets in the way.
4: Sure, sure. Well, welcome. Uh, Good morning. My name is Sylvia, and. well oh, this seemed like a good thing to, to come to. Maybe um, I can learn something I didn't know. I have a variety of kinds of pain. Mm-hmm. Um, mostly, the, the pain I have is sort of unexplained in Western medicine. So I just hope I can pick up some information Terrific. To like
5: where do go next? Mm-hmm. I guess we can just keep moving across yeah, My name thing. is Manette. Uh, I have had back problems forever and I find uh, if I walk it becomes very painful. So I walk with a stick between my elbows in my back and the stick ends up touching the part of my back which is most painful mm-hmm. and I find it helps. Hmm. Um, <clears throat> I have had uh, shoulder problems forever, so usually I get an injection every four months or so and sometimes it works for a, a very long time and sometimes it mm-hmm. doesn't work at all. you mm-hmm. well, welcome.
6: My name is Norm Allinger, I basically have problems with my knees many years ago. I. I should have had my knees replaced, and I thought, well, I was too young. And then <laughs> the next thing I know, I woke up one morning, I found out I was too old. <laughs> so these things happen overnight. So uh, my problem is I, I try to have an active life. I like to uh, deal with a stationary bicycle, or I like to deal with a... Mowing machine mm-hmm. uh, or uh, uh, a treadmill, and also try to walk. But I noticed because my knees are giving me a problem, it's hindering me. I walk slower. I find everyone says, Be careful, you're older, you don't want to fall, break a hip or leg or whatever. And so uh, you're overly cautious. Uh, 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 that uh, when you do walk, so at times I use a, I have a walking stick, you know, which or hiking stick, and I utilize that. But again, I can tell everything is slowing down, and it sort of bothers me because uh, I'm sort of hindered, I'm not as active as I try to be or used to be. Mm-hmm. That's about the gesture.
4: great. Um, my name is Elizabeth, and I have an occasional ache or pain and um, I came to listen to see what pointers I could pick up aside from knowing I should exercise, which I do, Mm -hmm. but uh, I didn't know what else you would suggest. Terrific. Welcome.
7: Mm -hmm. My name is Mark. Uh, I'm from Canterbury down near the Concord area. Um, I have a lot of arthritis, hands, feet, uh, lower back, uh, shoulder. Uh, I have a torn rotator cuff from too much working out, probably, um, which led me to stop playing tennis. Um, I still run. Um, I, I play golf now, I, and I walk the golf course while all the young guys are riding in carts and drinking <laughs> beer. Um, so that's good. I, you know, I, I keep very active, um, but again, I. Came to uh, hear some uh, magical cures, I guess. Okay. Uh, well, we'll, we'll try some pains. <laughs> yeah.
5: My name is Nan, and I'm on that page. I'll go with the magical cure part. <laughs> uh, lower back, as usual, you know, mm-hmm. with everybody, and a little bit of sciatica type of thing that does respond to certain kinds of exercise. Mm-hmm. We're looking for the magic part. Okay. (laughs) Let's see what we can do.
6: Okay. My my name is Ron. I'm here just to learn more how to deal with all the joint pain that I have. Mm -hmm.
0: (laughs) So I think that there's a couple of... We'll start out by giving you what the take-home is really about today. And I think if there's one take-home, it's that managing pain really is a partnership and begins with you. And it's a partnership with your provider. And I think people have a lot of challenges with this, mostly because of us, the providers, number one, have very little time. So as you know, in this day and age, you're scheduled for a 15-minute or a 20-minute appointment. And and that just doesn't cut it when you really need to manage pain. It takes a little bit more time. So part of it is really you advocating for yourself and really Coming into an appointment with the intent, this appointment is really about talking about my pain. So making that appointment right up front and saying, this is what I want to talk about. And don't talk about anything else. Because what happens is patients come in and very often it, it, it's not that main issue. Then they something else comes up that they're having an issue with. And all of a sudden the time is up and we really didn't focus on the pain. So again, taking the responsibility to say, this is a partnership with your provider. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit about that. So what happens when you go in for that appointment? What are the things that the provider needs to know? How can you best help facilitate the best outcome of that visit, which is to help you certainly manage your pain? Um, part of that is really describing your pain. and. It amazes me that sometimes when I ask a patient, tell me a little bit about their pain, they they haven't thought about that. They haven't thought about how to respond to that. So some of the things that helps us is, is it an aching pain? Is the pain worse when you do X? So sometimes patients will come in and say, it's worse when I go up the stairs, but I'm okay going down the stairs. It really hurts worse at night. The pain is really like a tingling pain. It's like this sharp shooting pain. Or it's like an achy pain or a spasm. Those types of things to characterize um, the pain does really help us to figure out number one what the cause of the pain is and number two how best what what is that what is that treatment plan. As I mentioned this really takes a lot of time and effort so it's really hard sometimes to keep coming back in for another appointment and another appointment. Um, For a lot of us and anybody who practice, who gets their care at DH, we have an electronic portal. What does that mean? Patients can send us electronic messages. So that's one mechanism that we use, and very often I will say to the patient, okay, let's do this for five days, and then I want an email from you. I want you to send me a message, and let's say, is it the same, is it better, is it worse? And then we'll go, okay, it seems to be a little bit better, So then let's do this now, or let's add this, or no, that didn't work, let's stop this. Because what happens from visit to visit, if you were to come in and we develop a plan, and then you don't come back for two months, what happens is, if it doesn't work, patients get frustrated, they stop doing whatever it is, and then they're back to square one, but they're not in again until two months later. So they'll come in in two months and say it didn't work. Um, In geriatrics, our focus is on two main things. Number one is function, function, function. So what does that mean? If you have pain that's interfering with what you want to do in life, that's a really big issue for us. Um, And number two is quality of life. And usually the two of those go hand in hand. Because when we ask people about quality of life issues or what is it that you think about as you age in terms of, um, your your overall health, um, what your goals are in terms of where you want to be. Most people say function. Most people say, I want to be able to walk. I want to be able to do what I like to do. I want to be able to live at home or whatever, whatever their goals are. And so part of that is function and part of it is quality of life. And as a geriatric practitioner, that really is my goal and my obligation to figure out what is it that you want in terms of your care and how aggressive you want us to be to figure this out. And when I say aggressive, I don't necessarily mean how many more medicines I'm going to add to your med list, but how, how much are you willing to really partner and put in the time to figure out about things that <laughs> we can we can do together to make it better. I've given out. Did everybody get the handouts? You guys didn't get them. I'll just get them for you. Um, one of the things that is very, very helpful um, is a pain diary. And what that does is I love, love, love when patients come in with pain diaries. Sure. Because it really does help us to identify as the questions, you know, um, what makes it better? When are you getting the pain? Um, and again, like I said, that really helps to identify um, some of the things that we can do for it. So. Not easy stuff. Some of this takes time, and it takes a lot of effort to do this. So when we talk about describing the pain, we want to know where does it hurt, very specifically where does it hurt. When did it start? Does it come and go? Most pain in older adults, most persistent pain is musculoskeletal pain. So that's really what we're focusing on today. We're not talking about kind of acute pain that you'd get with, you know, a gallbladder attack or gout although those things happen, what we're really talking about is kind of this persistent pain, which just from what you guys talked about already, that's really what we're dealing with is is musculoskeletal pain, mostly from osteoarthritis. Sometimes people have worsening pain from injuries that they've sustained. Sometimes it's sports injuries when they were much younger. Um, But some people will come in and say, you know, I've always had a problem with this shoulder. dislocated when I was a pitcher in high school and the shoulder has never been the same. Um, Again, what does it feel like? Is it aching? Is it stabbing? Is it sharp? Is it associated with any tingling or burning or heat? Um, Anything make it better? Usually patients come in and and they've tried stuff because Intelligent people, and they'll go to the drugstore, and they'll either talk to a pharmacist, or they'll go to that aisle in CVS, and they'll see, you know, icy hot, and they'll see all kinds of different things. Um, and um, so, so most of the time, people will come in um, and have have tried things. So that's really helpful for us to know: is what have you tried, um, and are there any other symptoms associated with it? that's another thing that's really important. So for example, um, do you get swelling? So do you have, you know, do your feet hurt? And there's also edema associated with it, so swelling of your feet. And is that part of the syndrome of what's going on? So I just talked about this for a minute. So just to define it, acute pain begins suddenly, lasts for a short time and goes away as your body heals. So for example, I have a lot of patients who fall, and they have injuries when they fall. So they will have some pain associated with that, and then it goes away. And so when we, uh, when we, we'll, we're gonna talk a little bit about some treatments. So some treatments that have side effects, we will use more aggressively when we manage acute pain, because we're not continuing it for a long time. So as you well know, you go to the dentist, you have a tooth extracted, you have some kind of a dental procedure, they give you a Percocet, they give you an opioid, you take it for 48 hours, and then you're off of it. Now, does that mean that we're going to prescribe opioids chronically? Sometimes we do, but generally not. So the treatment for acute pain is generally very different than what we do for chronic pain. Chronic or persistent pain lasts for several months or years, and most pain in older adults, as I've already mentioned, is persistent pain. So this is one of the hardest things for us as clinicians, is that pain is subjective. The only way we can measure your pain is by you telling us. So, as you well know, we can measure your blood pressure, we can take a chest x-ray and look at your lungs, we can measure your oxygen saturation, and those are very objective measures. And we can say, okay, your blood pressure was here. This is how we treated it. You came back. It looks like it's working, but not so with pain. So, what happens is that somebody's subjective uh, response to it is really what what is the measure that we have to be able to to know whether or not any interventions work. And people have all different pain thresholds, right? So, you know, some people. Slam their finger in the car door, and they go to work the next day, and they have a swollen finger and a black fingernail, and they're like, "Oh well, you know, I've hit my thumb with a hammer. I'm a carpenter or whatever," and that's life. Somebody else would call in sick for three days. <laughs> um, so, so again, it's very, very subjective. However, what we know is, and getting back to the pain diary, is by you having your own kind of objective measure to know. Is, uh, am I a 5 today or is it a 2? When I do this, after I play golf, is my pain a 6? Um, so by you trying to objectify it really helps us because that's the only way for us to know whether something's getting better or whether it's worse. Uh, many years ago, about 10 years ago, the Joint Commission of Hospitals said that pain is the fifth vital sign. So it, vital signs include heart rate, respiration rate, blood pressure. Those are what we call the vital signs. So no matter what happens, certainly as a nurse, that's what I was trained, the first thing you do is take somebody's vital signs. You walk into an emergency room, what do they do? They take your blood pressure, your pulse, your respirations. Those are the vital signs. And because it became um, um, such a big issue for, in, in a very good way, The Joint Commission said everybody needs to be asked about their pain. So now, when you go into an emergency room, wherever you go, they constantly are asking you, are you in pain right now? Can you rate your pain on a scale of zero to ten? Zero being no pain, ten being the worst pain ever. Sometimes we use other scales. We have a very common, what we call the faces scale. Um, So that type of a scale looks at different faces and grimaces of faces. And it's helpful for people who, English is not their primary language. Sometimes people who have cognitive impairment can use the FACES scale. Sometimes patients who have cognitive impairment can't use the NUMBER scale, but they can say it hurts a little or a lot. Um, So again, it's extremely important for you to think about what your measure of pain is. Um, Some patients are very quick to report their pain. Um, and, again, that makes it a bigger challenge for us because some patients come in and they they have chronic pain, but that is the focus of every single visit. And and so that's hard sometimes to, to really know, are we really under-treating this patient's pain or does this patient, again, have such a low threshold for pain? Um, But we have no way to determine that. So we have to take patients' complaints at face value. Um, When I ask patients about why they don't talk to their providers about pain and what makes it so challenging, very often they'll say, the doctor will say, well, you're 80. You know how you have some pain? You're 80 years old. So it's dismissed a lot. So pain is not really um, um, treated in. I would say it's treated very differently in older adults than it would be than a 20-year-old who came in who has pain. Um, and I think that sometimes patients are also worried, is there something really wrong with me that's bad? Um, and that is the doctor going to order all kinds of tests so they live with the pain because they don't want an MRI, they don't want CAT scans, they don't want somebody to ta- be talking to them about a joint replacement. So they just, and, and they assume nothing can be done, so they don't talk to their providers about pain. Um, and on the other hand, most providers are, are not equipped. They don't have the competencies to really manage a lot of pain in older adults or back to the time issue. Um, so it becomes a real challenge. So the good news is, back to the magic bullets, is that there are many, many modalities that we use to treat pain. Um, the other thing is is that patients assume, and this happens very often, is that all providers have a knee-jerk reaction to a medication. And most older adults don't want one more medication added to their medication list because they're already on six medications or seven medications, sometimes even more than that. So they don't want another medication added. Um, So it becomes a very frustrating experience because that's what the doctor says, well, just take Tylenol or just take Advil or whatever it is that that they're prescribing. But there are both pharmacological and non-pharmacological treatments. Many of you talked about exercise that I'm sure you talked to your providers about, and exercise is something that we prescribe a lot, and I'm going to talk about that in a minute. Again, the take-home message, it really really takes a partnership with a provider to help figure this out. And and not just necessarily a primary care provider, but people have other types of providers in their lives. They have chiropractors, they have physical therapists, they have other providers or other people that help them to to manage their pain. I'm going to talk for a few minutes about medicines. what we find is that acetaminophen or Tylenol is probably one of the safest drugs that we, that we prescribe in general. Um, very often people will say, Tylenol doesn't work for me, so I don't even take it, it doesn't work for me. And what I say to that is, is a lot of people, if their pain, back to the rating of the pain, let's say their pain is a 5 or a 6. Well, their pain is too high at that level to be treated with Tylenol. So what you have to do is what I say, come in front of that. So you have to take Tylenol on a routine, scheduled basis. Very often then people will say to me, oh wait, I read all those reports about Tylenol and doesn't it do something to my liver? Well, the, the, the short answer to that is that not with limited doses, okay? So if you don't have liver disease, um, and even patients with liver disease, sometimes we prescribe Tylenol, as long as it's at a reasonable dose. A reasonable dose for most older adults is 1,000 milligrams three times a day. So that's two extra strength Tylenol three times a day. And what I say to people, again, back to that partnering, try it for two weeks. Just do me that favor. I know you're telling me it doesn't work for you, but let's just try this for two weeks. If it doesn't work, stop it. But let's just try this for two weeks. Some people do very well with just taking two at night. The other trick that I use with Tylenol is for patients who say the morning is the worst. It really takes a while in the morning for me to get up before I can function because of my pain. What I say to them most people wake up early. There's that first wakening in the morning. So, so most people have that first wakening, maybe at 5 or 6, depending upon your schedule. And then they kind of roll over and, you know, try to go back to sleep. Or they're up going to the bathroom. And they say, that's the time to take the two Tylenol. Take it then, go back to bed, be in bed for another hour or so, and then the Tylenol has kicked in. And some people do very well with just taking those two Tylenol at that moment in time. What does
1: does Tylenol do? Does it make something numb or?
0: So Tylenol is an analgesic. So what that means is that it just deals with pain receptors. So there are other things that we'll talk about, like the (coughs) non-steroidal anti-inflammatories that do just that. They're anti-inflammatories. So Tylenol is not an anti-inflammatory. It does not treat the cause of the pain but treats the receptors that make the pain pain. Um, Other times people will say to me, um, the pain is really worse after, you know, I play golf. So we'll say, okay, why, why not try taking two Tylenol before you get on the golf course, or whatever. So we use that. But again, people get much better relief when it's scheduled and they're taking it all the time. And we strongly recommend this because it's so benign. Tylenol is such a benign drug. It's probably the drug that we prescribe. And it has the least amount of side effect. It's very inexpensive. Um, and again, at these low doses, we really don't find any issues in terms of any liver disease. Non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. <coughs> What I say to patients is that this sends more gastroenterologists on cruises every year because (laughs) of the amount of GI bleeding, okay? So even at really low doses, drugs like Advil, ibuprofen, Motrin, Celebrex, they're all nonsteroidal anti-inflammatories, and they can cause a lot of GI distress. Bleeding is what we worry about, okay? They can also cause some, chronically, can cause some kidney issues and some cardiac issues if you've had some significant cardiac issues. In general, back to the acute chronic thing, in general, if somebody has had a history of GI bleeding, an ulcer, I will never prescribe an anti-inflammatory. That's it. If you've had bleeding before, never prescribe it. However, if you've never had any bleeding before, and you don't have significant kidney issues or cardiac issues, we use non-steroidal anti-inflammatories at low doses for short periods of time. So you fall, you pull your shoulder, whatever. Again, you're playing sports, you're exercising. If you have an acute injury, we will often prescribe very low dose. So for example, for ibuprofen or Motrin, and that's the one with the least side effects, 200 milligrams three times a day with food, okay? That's one little red pill on the ibuprofen, which is only 200 milligrams. Now, when we prescribe that in younger people, we'll prescribe like 800 milligrams three times a day for an acute injury. I can guarantee if any one of you wound up in the emergency room at a non-geriatric friendly ER, you would get high doses of poultry. So, this is a very common thing, that people order very high doses of Motrin in older adults. That's when the GI guys go on cruises all the time uh, because, of the, because of the high rate of the bleeding. So we really are very, very careful. Now, do I have people that take chronic anti-inflammatories? Yes. Um, and those are people that say to me, this is the only way that I can get through my day, is to take this and I take it with food. Sometimes we even prescribe a stomach medicine that's gonna protect their stomach so they can take the anti-inflammatory. So we'll prescribe an omeprazole or a Prilosec with the anti-inflammatory. Again, back to what we talked about, function and quality of life. So if somebody says to me, look, this is the only way that I can function is if I take this anti-inflammatory, then we talk about how we can manage that. Mm
5: -hmm. Does it make any difference if you take buffered aspirin as opposed to plain aspirin?
0: Great question. So aspirin steps it even higher in terms of your risk of bleeding, buffered or not buffered. Mm -hmm. Um, So yes, it does, but even what we're finding in the recent studies, even low-dose aspirin increases your risk of bleeding, so even baby aspirin, which have, you know, who doesn't take a baby aspirin every day? It was always the joke that they said, well, you know, the research is still out, but every doctor in America takes 81 milligrams of, of aspirin every day because of the, the studies that have come out that show the, the risk of, of, uh, of heart attacks and how just a baby aspirin every day reduces your risk of a heart attack. Um, but aspirin has a much higher, actually, incidence of bleeding than even the anti-inflammatories. <laughs> um, Narcotics. Yes.
3: I'm sorry. To That's okay. Um, I've been prescribed uh, 81 milligrams by my doctor. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to go get some. Um, what is in the coating of the coated? She wanted me to take coated aspirin.
0: Right. So the coating on aspirin or buffered aspirin, it's 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 a sim- simethicone. So it's like a Malox. Oh. So it's like a little Maalox that's wrapped around the, mm. so it protects your stomach. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Um, and again, this is all something that's done in partnership with your provider. I'm just giving kind of some general uh, uh, guidelines and recommendations,
2: but everybody is different, so. What do you think about taking ibuprofen? IV and I've been taking it since 1978 without stopping, uh, sometimes much larger doses when I was younger. Mm-hmm i um, 84 now, um, and I'm still taking uh, 400 twice a day with food. Mm-hmm. Uh, everybody I've run into in the medical field has said, if it works, keep taking it. If you haven't had any bleeding, keep taking it. I also take, of course, the low-dose aspirin for the peripheral arteries. Right,
0: right. So I think what we know is that as you age, your risk goes way up for any type of side effects from it. My job and the job of any provider is to educate patients, to say, these are the studies, and I can show you the studies that say, you know, 60 years old, you're taking all this Motrin, you're perfectly fine. As you age, if you looked at the correlation between GI bleeds and ibuprofen, the risk goes, it's, it's really very linear. The, the risk goes way up. So, we're back to the discussion about function, quality of life, and risk. Um, so what we will try to do is reduce the amount, because it's dose-dependent, meaning the greater the dose, the greater the chance you have of having any GI bleed. So we would say, let's try reducing that by adding maybe some schedule title, something like that. We will attempt to reduce it. Some people say, I can't function. I'm going to take the risk. but. Take it with food or again maybe even adding another stomach protector medication to prevent that Um, so again it becomes a very individualized um, plan Uh, i'm sure go ahead
7: yeah i will take a leave or ibuprofen once every 10 days or two weeks and i know i'm going to have some bleeding afterwards is there any concern about Permanent damage if it's that infrequent. You know, I don't take it every day.
0: Right. Um, and when you say you have bleeding afterwards, you have obvious bleeding.
7: Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, I would strongly recommend you taking an over-the-counter stomach like an omeprazole with it, and I bet you'll reduce. I do your take bleeding.
7: omeprazole every morning. You do?
0: Twenty milligrams.
7: Yeah.
0: Yeah. So you could try taking another one with, with the uh, with the occasional a You take a leaf you said, or you did? Yeah, something. Either a leave
7: or ibuprofen. Yeah.
0: Right. Um, again, there's, there's, there's no study that shows. Okay, this is the straw that's going to break the camel's back for you. Um, but I think again, if you if you if you go to the doctor and you have blood work done and they know you're not anemic, so that's part of the problem is that sometimes people are anemic to start out for whatever reason they're not producing enough red cells or whatever so you take somebody who's a, li- a little bit of anemic already and then have them a little bit of bleeding and then you start to run into some trouble so um, you know back to the occasional dosing that generally is okay um, um, and and but again if you're already bleeding then that you obviously already already have the risk um, I mean, I'm, go ahead.
5: Isn't acetaminophen
0: supposed to be bad for your kidneys? No, it's your liver. So acetaminophen is metabolized in the liver. Um, But again, with reasonable doses and low doses that I said, there aren't any studies. The studies that have been done that have shown a lot of liver problems with with acetaminophen are really, really high doses, not low doses that we prescribe. I'm sure there's nobody here that hasn't heard, hasn't read, uh, hasn't seen on TV uh, the issues that we have with opioid use in this country, um, and what's being done um, at the regulatory level in terms of controlling the prescribing of opioids. Um, For many of you, you're aware that you know Governor Shumlin last year in Vermont made this. That was the, the his state state of the state address was about um, the issue with uh, addiction um, and prescribing in Vermont. Um, Has anybody heard of the movie Hungry Hearts? Um, If you have an opportunity to see this movie, I strongly recommend it. The movie is about a pediatrician um, in the north country of Vermont, like uh, St. Albans, um, and He was having 16- and 17-year-olds come into his office begging him to help them, that they were addicted to painkillers. They were addicted to opioids. And he didn't know how to help them. Um, And there is a drug called Suboxone that has really revolutionized addiction, the treatment of addiction, Um, much more so than methadone, which was always the, the drug that we used. Um, Suboxone, however, is a drug that um, is very challenging to use and prescribe. You have to be licensed separately to prescribe it. And you can only have, I don't know, it's something like 100 patients. So it's very challenging to use this Suboxone. But he had no idea what Suboxone was when these when these kids walked into his practice, but he came became very educated about this. And as you know, um, with addiction, there's a, a huge recidivism, um, just as there is with you know alcohol and tobacco use, any types of addicted substance. What you see very often is people will stop and they keep going back and, it, and because it's such a challenge to manage addiction. So this movie really profiles these young people and how they got involved and how this happened to them. And remarkably so, some of these kids are really mainstream kids. Some of the kids in the movie, you know, the parents were on drugs, the mother's shooting up in the kitchen. It's like, you know, they're really kind of at the edges. But a lot of these kids are mainstream kids who wound up getting addicted to these drugs very, very quickly. Um, and what we find is that we, providers, we prescribe a lot of these drugs. And a lot of these drugs get prescribed for many, many different reasons. So, I'll give you an example. My daughter, who's 17, had her wisdom teeth taken out. Now, she was given 30 pills, 30 tablets of Oxycodone. Um, she took one, and we used ibuprofen and Tylenol, and she was fine, and you know, wisdom teeth out, in two days, she was fine. She said to me, Mom, you know, there's a kid in my high school, he sold his. I'm like, what? I'm totally naive about this. I'm like, really? She's like, yeah. It's unbelievable the amount of so so the the street uh, uh, market for these drugs. She is about fifty dollars a pill. So she could take these drugs to Hanover High School and sell them for like fifty dollars a pill. And now they're being prescribed by the dentist. Which again, I'm not criticizing the oral surgeon that prescribed them because. She was having the wisdom teeth taken out, just like everybody in this room. You've had a procedure, you get a narcotic. Um, So what happens is, is that where are all these narcotics? Well, they tell you, don't flush them down the toilet, because then you're going to be drinking them, right? So when you see this movie, Hungry Hearts, two of the kids in there say, where did they get them from? Grandma. They went to their grandmother's medicine cabinet. Um, And... That all of the kids in this, and kids, and some of them were older in their twenties. They said that was one of the first things that they did was they would they went to somebody's house, open the medicine cabinet and see what was there. So of course I immediately ran home to my own medicine cabinet, and I'm you know a intelligent provider. Yet I had you know whatever it was, and I had that from her. I don't know my husband had something else. So what's happened now? is that there is a huge, huge control over any prescribing of these types of drugs. Any controlled substance that we have to have like a specific prescription for. So both in Vermont and New Hampshire, as a prescriber, I have to be registered and they track every single prescription that I write. So what has that done? It's provided, it's really encouraged a culture where we don't prescribe these opioids. Now, this has been happening over time, but it's it's much more acute right now. So it, it it is, you know, when we do prescribe chronic opioids, we have a contract. Does anybody know what that is when we talk about a, a narcotic contract? So if we are gonna have somebody on narcotic, you're shaking your head yes, you know what, do you wanna talk a little bit about that or? No,
5: I'm, oh, no, I'm, okay. I'm a neuroscientist. Oh,
0: okay. So, what a narcotic contract enables us to do is to have a contract with the patient that says you will get drugs from nobody else, because, again, when you think about patients who are addicts, they will try to go to different doctors to get different drugs, that you will only take the drug as prescribed. That you can't say, okay, oh, I have extra pain, so I'm going to take an extra one. What happens then, people run out of the drugs quicker, and we know anyway, because they're back in there. But you can't up the drug on your own. You have to communicate with us. So You can't change the prescription. And it goes through, it says you have to go to the same pharmacy to get the drugs. So somebody has to agree to a lot of these conditions before we will prescribe chronic opioid medications. Now, there are actually very few patients that we have to, in, in the context of all the patients that we care for, that we have to prescribe opioids for but there are some patients whose pain is so bad and it has such an impact on their quality of life that we do need to prescribe um, these types of medications.
4: Where could we see this
0: movie, Hungry Hearts? So what I would do, there's a website, so I would Google it and it will tell you, when the movie was made, it was to have been shown in every high school in Vermont. It was actually shown here at DH and at some of the showings, they actually have the cast and the physician come. He's retired. He's an amazing man. I mean, when you see this movie, you know, it's just what he did for these kids was just absolutely incredible. So if you Google it, it will show, I think, on the website where they're going to be. And obviously, this is New Hampshire, so it's not just Vermont. Yeah.
5: Um, Google how, how old ours. is it? Hmm? How old is the movie?
0: The movie was made. It's less than a year. It's it's oh, okay. it's pretty recent. They came to DH probably six months ago, and the movie was shown, and the cast was there, and yeah, it was really it was very enlightening. I have to say, as a provider, yep. um, to really hear their stories and to uh, have them talk about again um, where they got these drugs from, because it really makes you think. For every prescription that that you write where is that going to wind up and who potentially you know where where potentially could that do do real
8: but harm but isn't it they're so smart they they know how to beat that system and still be able to get drugs you know from another doctor do you think it's do you think it's really really foolproof oh that they can i to,
0: i agree with you 100% i think it just is so right. incredible so so and and we could talk about addiction for another hour and a half but but, but you know, the, the addiction is extremely extremely challenging to treat yeah. and 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 that what we do know is that when you are an addict and you have that craving for that drug then, you'll steal from your grandmother i mean yeah. i mean it's really really the uh, when you i mean obviously there's a whole study about addiction but um, people will do really, really crazy things, including doing a lot of illegal activity like stealing. I mean, that
8: was part of the whole movement. And isn't the prescription goes, you can't get it until the day, the day that you need that next pill? Usually, isn't... isn't so
0: when you have a contract,
8: yeah, back to that. Right.
0: So we have contracts and we are legally prescribing it. Mm-hmm. Um, again, you can't it's, get it
8: two days ahead,
0: or correct, either. correct. Right. You get it as it's prescribed, and we have a process whereby the prescriptions are uh, mailed to a pharmacy, mm-hmm. um, and you know, or patients come and pick up the because pa- they have to be paper prescriptions. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of controls yeah, over that. Yeah, yeah, so that's yeah. Much better. yeah. Um, there's a whole class of other medications that we use that are not necessarily medications that are for specifically for pain but will really help manage pain and we call them adjuvants so medications that along with pain medications can really help to make things better so for example antidepressants what we do know is that pain and depression go hand in hand so very often people who have chronic pain have depression and people who are depressed will focus on their chronic pain. So it's a syndrome that is very, very closely aligned. And what we know, though, is that if we can make one better, it helps the whole situation. So if we can start an antidepressant, again, the antidepressants sometimes work so synergistically, so together with pain medication, even like Tylenol, um, that it makes the whole situation better. Sometimes we make the pain better and obviously the depression gets better as well. So they're very, very closely aligned. We also use some other medications that we use for neuropathic pain. Um, So for example, a medication called Neurontin or Gabapentin is a medication that originally was used for seizures Um, and that we use sometimes for like jumpy legs syndrome like at night We use it for people who have pain after they've had shingles. We call it post-herpetic pain. Um, But getting back to you describing the pain, when people come in and say, it's the needly, tingly pain, it's shooting pain, then that clues us in that this may very well be what we call neuropathic pain, and we can use other treatments like Neurontin or Gabapentin for that pain.
6: What are some uh, antidepressants?
0: So the most common antidepressants that we use are citalopram. Um, what we call a class of it's called SSRIs. Uh, we use things like Wellbutrin, Zoloft, um, Paxil. Sometimes people still use um, and uh, Sertraline. We'll use so there's different classes, but the but starting with a low dose, like I said, an SSRI which is um, Celexa or Citalopram is, is one of the more common ones that we use. Um, what, what does SSRI stand for? It stands for serin Intake Inhibitor. Um, and the other thing is, is that <clears throat> years ago, a lot of the antidepressant medications that we use had a lot of side effects. Um, so, for example, in older people, it really increased their risk for falling. Um, and would cause other things, like a lot of sleepiness and dry mouth, and <clears throat> so we didn't use them as much, or we had to use them if we, if we really needed to in a patient, but we were very cautious, whereas now these new antidepressant medications have much, much less side effects. and we find that they really do help, especially when people have have chronic pain. Let's talk for a few minutes about non-pharmacological pain. Physical therapy. Um, Again, people will say, I exercise. Isn't that good enough? What what good is physical therapy going to do for me? I'm going to go, they're going to give me these exercises. It doesn't help. It never helps. Well, what we often say is, I'll talk to patients about the type of physical therapy that they have. Was the physical therapy prescribed specifically for the pain? So again, did that physical therapist know that you were coming there because you had pain, that you didn't have an injury? And you know, physical therapy is like anything else. You can go to somebody that really helps to manage what's going on, and you could go to somebody who's really focused on a 20-year-old with a sports injury. So finding the right physical therapist is really important. Mm-hmm. Um, what we do know with, with older adults is that, especially older adults who have real mobility issues, is that they actually need a course of physical therapy about three times a year, which is very different from traditional thinking. So traditional thinking is somebody comes in with an injury, they had you know a car accident, they have a whiplash, they fell, they have a rotator cuff problem. They, you know, we have physical therapy for a period of time, and then that's it. That's better. But what we know now is that they really do need kind of booster doses of physical therapy covered by Medicare, which is terrific. Um, So even if you're going back again, uh, very often, as long as you've had a break in the therapy of generally, like, not even more than two months, um, Medicare will pay for the physical therapy again. Um, so that's why I, I really try to get patients to understand that it's really, again, a booster dose. This is not something you're gonna do and it's gonna be done, you're gonna check that off. Um, and what happens is even people who are really very vigilant about doing the exercises at home, number one, sometimes they either fall off or there's other exercises that they maybe they could be doing it. So thinking of a physical therapist as a partner, As long term, not just for a short term, okay, I'm going to do this and it's going to be done. Um, So, I have patients that every few months were like, okay, you need to go back to physical therapy again. Needs an order that we have to prescribe. um, But that really can help. So, what are some of the modalities that physical therapists use besides just exercise type um, interventions? They can use TENS, which is transcutaneous electric nerve stimulators. Um, So they put these little patches on, and they actually use a little electrical stimulus. It probably helps in about 10% of people. So it's not something that's, yes, go get this. But there are people, again, depending upon the cause of their pain, that do get relief from this. And it's, again, completely benign. So why not try it? That's my philosophy. Some people actually own TENS machines because they get relief from them. Um, Massage, ice, and heat. Most of the time, um, we talk to people about using ice, especially when they have inflammatory pain, or again, any type of an injurious pain, um, to be using ice. Um, You mentioned before about Western medicine. Um, What we do know in terms of Eastern medicine is that acupuncture is probably the one intervention that has actually been put through some rigorous research. And we do know that it absolutely 100% helps. Um, And there are some fine acupuncturists in this area. One of the challenges is is that it's not paid for by Medicare. So that's a challenge because people have to pay for it out of pocket. But people do get significant relief. Uh, There are things like guided imagery um, what we do know is that um, your mind uh, works a lot, either against your pain or for your pain. So I'll give you an example what we what we see a lot of times in, say for example, the nursing homes. If people are not engaged in other types of activities, their pain level is much higher. But if you engage people in an activity, and you know yourself. You know, you kind of push through the pain. All of a sudden, you're like, okay, I'm going to get up. I'm going to do something. I'm going to watch a movie, whatever it is, that distraction. And then the pain is much less, as opposed to just sitting, feeling the pain, thinking about the pain, and focusing on the pain. So that's part of some of the the issues of of guided imagery. Um, Let's talk for a few minutes about, um, let me just see what this next slide is. I don't want to jump ahead myself about different, other types of, okay, other modalities. Um, Has anybody here been to a pain clinic? Okay. Um, One of the things that's used in pain clinics are nerve blocks. And the the role of a nerve block (coughs) is that they actually try to zero in on the nerve that's causing the pain Um, and in the hopes that 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 will help. A little different from using steroid injections, which we talked about, Um, so steroid injections versus a nerve block, steroid injections will actually inject an anti-inflammatory into a joint, usually. Um, and what that does is that's a kind of this superdose of the anti-inflammatory that doesn't cause all those bleeding effects that oral uh, anti-inflammatories will. Um, one of the challenges is that uh, I'm sure you all remember um, the pharmaceutical uh, mixing firm that was in Massachusetts and there was all that controversy about the, the steroid, the liquid steroid. And that people that it was all contaminated. Um, so I actually have people now who say I remember that, and I will never get a you know a steroid injection, um, even though we had nothing to do with that pharmaceutical firm here at the hospital. But people again, some get things in their head, and then they don't want to do it. What we find with steroid injections is that is this: number one, almost no side effects. So it's terrific. So the risk of getting a steroid injection is. That it doesn't work, usually. Um, and what we do find is that some people get really significant relief and almost instantaneous. Some people, it takes a little while. So it's not instantaneous in all people. So some people, it takes up to three days, um, up to a week, we say, after you get this steroid injection before it gets better. Um, what we know is that some people get relief for a short period of time, and then it goes away. Um, Usually, you will not get serial injections quickly together, Um, so it's usually a couple of months that we wait before we'll redo another injection. Um, We also avoid doing many, many injections, you know, like 15 injections over a lifetime, because it can uh, affect the joint, um, but can be extremely effective um, for both acute and and chronic pain. so that is really terrific. Um, some providers will do injections in the office. So, for example, across the street we will do hips and knees, generally won't do shoulders or wrists. Um, so sometimes people get uh, again, um, significant wrist pain from and it's kind of not necessarily a carpal tunnel or like a pre-carpal tunnel that they, really have a hard time. I mean, I've had patients that say, like, I can't knit, I can't do anything. Um, and we'll, and they'll get injections, and they'll be fine. And sometimes they'll be fine for two years. Um, so that's another option. Um, some people use hypnosis. Um, again, the mind over matter kind of thing, um, which can be very helpful. Um, usually when patients go to a pain clinic, We think of this as kind of a comprehensive assessment and a comprehensive plan that includes many, many different options that they talk to you about.
7: I noticed you did not include chiropractic. Mm -hmm. A lot of people swear by chiropractic, Mm -hmm. Chiropractic. Right. Any reason for that?
0: Um, No, I mean, I'm not completely anti. Um, As you know, most most traditional uh, Western providers um, don't promote chiropractic care. And I my feeling is I actually think that some chiropractors do amazing work. What, what I talk to patients about is do we know what's causing the pain? So not just to go to a chiropractor. Do we know what's causing the pain, that it's not something that really we need to investigate further? Um, and what type of chiropractic care is it? Um, so there are chiropractors that I call cowboys, and then there are other chiropractors. I worked with a chiropractor in New York when I did work in HIV and AIDS. She was both a, a masseuse and a chiropractor. And so the type of chiropractic care she did was, was very low intense. It wasn't this kind of cowboy care, as I call it. So again, it depends on the chiropractor. Um, there are some risks in chiropractic care. Um, especially in terms of your neck. Um, So again, I don't, it's not something that I don't recommend and some people get tremendous relief from chiropractors. Um, But just as long as they are aware of, you know, certainly in terms of of that risk. Um, So let's talk for a minute about exercise because that's probably one of the things that we really talk a lot about and providers talk a lot about. And so the etiology behind that is so, let's just say you have knee pain. And that knee pain is really probably caused by a degeneration of that knee joint. Bone on bone, um, degeneration of discs in your back. So, So it's a skeletal problem, right? So what we do know is that, and this is just really kind of simple, the impact on that skeletal problem on those two bones, right, can make the pain a lot worse, right? So most people will say, when I walk, that's when it hurts. What we know is that if we can build the up the accessory muscles, the stronger the accessory muscles are to that joint, we can take what I say is the heat off that joint, right? So there's much less pressure then on that skeleton of that knee. So because you're, you've got much stronger quad muscles, right? And so that takes away the pressure of putting on that knee. So that's it, that's a simple explanation of why exercise works, or why exercise helps. The other thing that exercise does is it hopefully helps you and trains you not to do the wrong things, right? So people who have back problems, for example, um, They'll come in and they'll say, I did it again, I lifted this way, I did that, whatever I wasn't supposed to do, I did, and that's why I'm back here again. Um, So again, it helps to think about that. Exercise, while it really has to be done regularly, people are shocked at the small amounts of exercise that they can do that actually helps. Um, And walking is absolutely terrific, but walking really helps in terms of overall function, cardiovascular health. But if you have a specific knee problem, you should be doing specific knee exercises. If you have a shoulder problem, you should be doing very special shoulder exercises and doing them regularly. Um, So there are a lot of other modalities specific to, again, physical therapy that they can help you with. Um, For example, pool therapy. So some people get tremendous benefits from, from doing their exercises in a pool. Uh, Medicare will pay for that, so there are ways to get that paid for. Mount of Scutney has a great program, there's one at CCBA. So we can specifically prescribe pool therapy. What What happens is that you come to see a physical therapist first at DH, so you need to see a physical therapist for an evaluation for, specifically for pool therapy. And some people get really tremendous benefits from that, especially people who find it hard to do exercises outside of the pool because of their pain. Um, other things that are that are you know kind of obvious is getting enough sleep, uh, avoiding tobacco, caffeine, alcohol, um, and 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 again, sometimes people really need the support of one another to talk about that, talk about their pain. Um, Chronic pain can be um, very challenging emotionally. Uh, it can, as I mentioned before, talk about depression, can cause anxiety. Um, so it is extremely important to think about that from a psychological uh, point of view. And again, that's a lot of what happens in terms of like a comprehensive pain center.
3: Yeah, uh, you mentioned caffeine and I that, that, that rang the bell. What uh, uh, is the thinking about that? Reducing it or eliminating it from one's...
0: Right. Diet? So it's a great question. So what is, what is the mechanism, I imagine, that you're asking? And, no. I, and I honestly don't know what the mechanism is, other than to know when we look at studies and look at people who have persistent pain that's not getting better. Uh, part of that is is people who, uh, who have higher doses of caffeine. I would uh, venture to guess that it's more neuropathic pain. However, when we talk about caffeine, you know, my general philosophy is everything in moderation. Okay? So when we talk about caffeine, are are you having, you know, the questions I would ask patients, are you having more than two cups of coffee a day? Are you having more than two cups of caffeine? You know, so it's not just coffee, it's obviously tea, there's caffeine in soda, there's, you know, caffeine in other things. Um, and one of the things that I, that we talk about, it just in terms of general reduction of any substance, would be to do it gradually. So to again reduce the amount that you're having to start out to try to do that. Um, certainly, part of it in terms of coffee is using the half and half, half decaf, half regular coffee. So some of, some of those things that people don't even even feel any different when they try to reduce it. And again. Um, Managing pain, like a lot of other things, there's no one light switch. There's no one thing that you're going to do. It's really a combination of things that you, you, if you think about it, it's just a little bit of this and a little bit of that, um, and when they all come together, you get better, better pain relief.
4: Well, this, uh, I'm trying to make sense of this because many of the pain relievers contain caffeine.
5: So
4: mm-hmm. what, um, what's going
0: on? So I think acutely, I think if people are in, for example, caffeine withdrawal of a headache, um, so there are um, some benefits, and, and you're right, there are, years ago, I think there used to be a lot more medications that had pain medications that had caffeine in it. Just generally now, a lot of the pain medications don't have don't have caffeine in it. But I think if somebody had, again, uh, uh, was in caffeine withdrawal. The the adding the caffeine back would make the headache go away. Um, so that's so that was certainly part of it. I think when we look at again the studies that look at ongoing uh, high levels of caffeine intake um, and and how that's associated with pain, um, I think that. Um, Just to talk for a minute about people who are cognitively impaired, we talked before about um, how we measure pain on a scale of 0 to 10 and what happens when somebody can't tell you what that number is. What happens when somebody is cognitively impaired and can't even express that they have pain or not. How do we know as clinicians, as providers? Um, So we do have scales where we look at things like moaning and grimacing and increase in agitation um, that we use to to try to measure pain. Um, There's a lot of myths about pain. um, And so I thought we would just go through a a couple of these. Uh, Number one, most people don't have to live with pain. Truth or myth? Truth. We've just spent the last, you know, hour and fifteen minutes talking about how you can get to be either pain-free or have a reduction in the amount of pain that you have. Um, most people who take narcotics become addicted to the medicine. Truth or
7: myth?
0: Myth. Most people do not become addicted, um, although. As we talked about, that's what we read about all the time, right? That's what's in the headlines. So people become very, very fearful about taking opioids. Um, Taking pain medicine regularly for persistent pain is best.
6: Yeah.
0: Right. And the operative word there is really regularly, and we talked about that, especially in terms of using the Tylenol. You can do with less medicine if you take it regularly. Uh, as opposed to waiting till your pain is a six or a seven, and then trying to use two Tylenol, and then you're like, the Tylenol doesn't work. So I have to up the game. I have to take then an ibuprofen or even a Percocet because the pain is is not going away. Well, if you had taken the Tylenol regularly, it may have gotten to a three or four, and you might have been able to manage that. Um, pain is a normal part of growing old. No, miss. Excellent. Okay.
3: That's what I get from my doctor.
0: I know. I know. So I am going to stop there and and open it up to questions or discussions.
8: One thing um, you didn't cover like under um, all this uh, pain, um, things that you can do, exercise and stuff, is there's mindfulness and also going just to the pain clinic, where you learn to um, deal with your pain mentally, um, because that is, I went through everything at the hospital, ended up there, and um, they did wonders um, just dealing with my pain, mm-hmm. converting uh, pain that I thought was in my hip, which wasn't, and it's in my spine. and. If I didn't have that, I don't know where I'd be today. But that was a really good. Study. Yeah,
0: I think that's a great point. I thank you for bringing that up. So um, the issue is about mindfulness, mm-hmm. okay? Which I'm going to ask you about. But I did mention something imagery. So imagery, imagery is a I little thought, different, it's, it's, it's different than than mindfulness yeah. and a support group. But tell us about the, the mindfulness and what that is. Um,
8: mindfulness is, oh God, um, it's. Um, It's identifying where your pain is. This is the way I do it, anyway. Identifying your pain and then, um, um, identifying your pain and then taking it. And, um, there's two ways of doing it either taking the pain, saying it's in your spine, taking your spine and taking it outside of your body and being none. Non-judgmental about it, and just say, um, uh, you know, you you want you want your pain to go away, and you know you keep saying that, and you're in a quiet, la- relaxed um, environment, and and eventually you keep doing that, and it does it it does um, alleviate the pain. Mm-hmm. Um, that's one way. Um, I tend to do the imagery a lot mm-hmm. um, where I've picked something that's um, I happen to like sunflowers, and I've used it a lot up here where they've forgotten to give me my medication in an operation. And so I went right to the sunflowers and I went through the operation without, without any medication. they couldn't believe it. Hmm. or they put, had to put in a shunt in. Um, it's a hard to get medication out of um, needles into me and they couldn't believe it that I just went to that place and mm-hmm. um, they were able to mm-hmm. do it. So, uh, so for uh, yeah. a long time I practiced um, imagery or mindfulness. Right. And a
0: lot of that goes together. So when I it try does. to describe mindfulness, mindfulness is like relaxation on steroids. It's like yes. where you go through a process of not only complete relaxation, but just trying to remove everything from what you're thinking about. So, so, so getting to that, that, you know, blank space in there. All right. And then through that process, like you said, trying to focus on whatever it is. So there's mindfulness
8: practice for stress. Mm-hmm. And that's one thing you have to get rid of your stressors too. Because yeah. yes. that adds a lot.
0: Anxiety, pain. So that process of mindfulness Uh, And there are classes around. I think that there was a mindfulness class that was given. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, And and so when you think about that, and again, it's not just one thing. No. So it's not just mindfulness, or the Tylenol, or the exercise, or the X, whatever that is, the ice, the, you know... It's, it's putting it all together as, as what we call a care plan. Mm-hmm. Putting it all together as a package to say this is how we're going to partner
8: together to do that. Um, and and, that's why I think you have to try everything, do everything, and then find out what things work for you under different circumstances. All
0: absolutely. Right. Absolutely. And, you know,
8: there's people
0: that… You know, I could stand on my head and are never going to exercise. They're just not going to do that. Um, um, because it's hard. It's it's really hard to do that. Um, and people, again, who are more opposed or for
8: whatever reason can't take some types of medication. I was also thinking, some people have said they've always been on this medicine. I sort of think that's an addiction too. You know, have they ever tried stopping taking some of their ibuprofen? You know, they've done it for 20 years or something like that. Um, because it's not healthy to be on medicine anyway, any kind. Um, you know, because I, I took ibuprofen for a long time and um, on high dosage. And I don't like putting all this stuff into my system. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, I finally decided, well, I'm going to ease off on that. And you find that sometimes you don't need all of that. If you sit around, yes, you think about that. But if you are busy and active, like you're supposed to be when you get older, <laughs> um, I, you know, I found that I could cut back. Mm-hmm. you know, that I didn't need to have all of that mm-hmm. that I used to have mm-hmm. um, so I think, I mean,
0: polypharmacy or reducing what we call polypharmacy is absolutely a goal in geriatrics. It's something that we talk about and we think about all the time. And one of the challenges that we have, and it's not just even for pain medication, but even for, I don't know, let's say blood pressure medication. Mm -hmm. What we know now when we look at the the new hypertension guidelines that have come out is that it's okay for an older adult's blood pressure to be greater than 130 over 80, which is what we thought about for somebody who's 20. Mm-hmm. So we're kind of relaxing that, and because we know that the dangers of low blood pressure are so much greater than the dangers of high blood pressure. So the the point of my example is that what we will try to do is to look at that medicine and say, you know what, you may not need this much medication. Let's try reducing this in half.
1: Yeah.
0: Now, the risk of that certainly with somebody who uses ibuprofen regularly is that the pain is going to come back. And sometimes people feel, you know what? It's not broken. Let's not fix it. Let's just keep on this course because I feel good. I'm active. This is what I want to keep doing. And quite frankly, I can't argue with that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I try, I try not to argue with mm-hmm. my patients who are 85 because. You know what? When they're eighty-five, they really know something about taking care of themselves because they're eighty-five. Yeah. So I think again, yeah. it's that partnership mm-hmm. and really listening to patients and who say, "I know, I know what you're saying to me. I know that I shouldn't be honest, but you know what? I, I really
8: this is this is well, my as long choice." As you, you've had that partnership, and you know that they aren't exaggerating or whatever. You know they know their body. Then okay, right. But, but I think your point is really well taken.
0: We see people all the time who have been on a slew of medications, they can't even remember when the medication was started or why the medication was started. Um, I just came from actually a three city trip of three national conferences starting from pharmacies to geriatrics and, and we talk a lot about um, medication reconciliation. So what happens when somebody goes from the hospital to the nursing home? For rehab to back home again. Well, you know, as their primary provider, we worked really hard in a clinic to say to somebody, probably, Tom, we could stop the statin. We could stop the Lipitor right now. We could probably stop the Aspirin. We could probably stop, get get rid of some of these medications, because you know what? Maybe those aches that you're having in your legs, maybe the statin's making it worse. So let's try to stop that. Somebody has a little chest pain, they go to the hospital, they're back on everything again. They're back on the statins, they're back on the aspirin, they're back on... Because again, the way our system works, as Lord, you guys know, is that all of a sudden now they're back having the cardiologist in charge of their care in the hospital. So then they go to the nursing home, and then they come back home. Now what happens is those medications stay with them, and then they get back home, and and unless <clears throat> You have a tremendous amount of time as a provider to do that, what we call medication reconciliation. Somebody winds up staying on that. So we see all the time people who are on medications that, yeah, yeah, or may need, and we don't know it, but, but what is the process of maybe reducing some of that?
7: <clears throat> I wanted to relate a quick anecdote, especially for this gentleman here who said he was too young to have his knee replaced <laughs> and then too old. My mother, <clears throat> at age 86, decided to have a, a knee replacement so she could continue playing golf. Um, and it was, it was very successful. Uh, the, f- the funny part of the story is the physician's assistant said, Mrs. Hampton, you know, this is only good for about 15 years. <laughs> she says, do the math. <laughs>
5: do the math. I don't buy green so. bananas, you know. Yeah.
7: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. You could still have it yeah. done. Yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so, so I'll take your question. In. So, the other thing is, is that the types of surgeries that we can do today, and as you again all see in the news about these non-invasive surgeries, so doing things like arthroscopy, where it's not Great. traditional. I mean, it's 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 practically an office procedure. So, you know, things that were, again, years ago, I mean, people are being discharged with hip replacements in the same day. Now, um, I don't know if that so that's terrific, especially so somebody's 85, but uh, there are a lot of things that are happening today in terms of even surgical interventions that are so much less invasive. And the things that really worry us about older adults and surgeries is the anesthesia. Yeah. That's the biggest problem. So again, if you can do these minimally invasive procedures where you don't need all that anesthesia, then the sky's the limit.
5: Uh, There is something recommended for depression, which is a light which is used for half an hour. It works only for 30 some percent. Is this good for any of the things we're talking about?
0: Good question. Seasonal so what, what you're talking about is what we call light therapy. Um, and that's to treat something that we see a lot up here in this part. It's called seasonal affective disorder. So when there is not a lot of light, when the amount of hours that we have light in the day, that affects people. affects people mentally. Um, so there are some people that do that that find themselves actually this time of year and as we go into winter their their mood changes yeah. we have people that we will that just go on antidepressants in the winter and' we'll, you know once the crocuses pop up they're off of them you know um, but we'll also there's also people that are just treated with the light therapy in the winter yeah and they sell light boxes they're called yeah but again it's a completely benign treatment and as we were talking, well, if you if you think that you're doing something for yourself, it's very hard to know whether that's, you know, again, you know, we talk about the placebo effect. Yeah. If you think something's, you know, working, it may very well work. Especially when it comes to things like mood and and depression.
8: Yeah. I do have that seasonal thing. And I feel it though. So. Yeah. yeah. What
4: what is the the best way to dispose of uh, medications that you don't, use, don't use anymore. You take up. Great you, question. Don't flush them down the toilet, but what do you do? Right. So,
0: there are some police stations that have disposable uh, units. And there was just actually a national bill passed that is mandating these boxes be put in healthcare facilities and in police stations. So you can call your local police station and your local pharmacy, um, yeah. and sometimes they are specific days. Some of them you can drop them off all the time. Um, so um, because can, it's a,
4: can they be used for other people, or are they no. just
0: destroyed? They're destroyed. They're destroyed, which is which is a shame. And and there are some programs actually that that we do um, that will take used medications, but not narcotics. It's too dangerous to do that, um,
8: but it's even sad though. Like um, even if it's packaged up, you know, and you haven't even opened it, they can't reach no, it. No, right? Nothing. It's just sh- It's so much waste in this. Country. There is a tremendous
0: amount of waste, and and you know that's coming to light more and more now in terms of. Thinking about accountable care and mm-hmm. value-based care, and can we reduce some of the some right. of this waste well, it's like for sure?
8: When you have a surgery, they automatically would get you everything that you might need, half of it you didn't use, you right. know. Right. Right. And they just right. Wait until right. Yeah. right. And what we find, <laughs> especially
0: in in healthcare facilities, if somebody goes say again has a knee replacement, a hip replacement, they wind up in a rehab facility for maybe only a week. Uh, the the you know we write all the list of medications that they could potentially have if they had a stomach ache in the middle of the night if they had this if they had that and the pharmacy delivers all those medications and once they're out that's it you're charged for them so again it's and not don't it's use them and well well it's not an individual generally that's charged it's it's us it's the government I mean it's you know Medicare is paying for this Medicaid is paying for this so we're all paying for this. Um, when these medications go unused, and it, there's a tremendous amount of of waste um, in terms of that. Other issues, questions? Well, I thank you for coming.
2: I hope this thank was you. helpful to uh,
0: to some degree.